Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. A heads up, this episode contains profanity. question we're working on for this episode is um, like why are towns like White River Junction uh, some towns of Vermont are thriving White River Junction is one of them how did that happen and then this person said when they used to be so bleak and what's your take on that I agree oh, hold on <laughs> say that again because I grew, I grew up on this street from here all the way to the end of this street was all my relatives at one time it was a thriving town when it was a railroad town, which it isn't now. If it's not for these stores here and these new restaurants, this town would be dead. And they're doing everything they can to clean up White River. It could have had this, especially this part of town has a real bad rep. Do you do you live here still? Yes. You live like right here? Yes. Nice. And and so, how many years have you lived here? Uh, sixty-five. Wow. So, what do you? It sounds like you approve of all the changes happening. For the most part, yes. We, we need the changes. Because downtown White River up until now was, was a dying town. Sorry, what's your name? Patrick Murphy. Patrick Murphy lives on South Main Street in White River Junction. He's just a few doors down from a hip new mixed-use building, a place where you can get an $80 haircut and then eat a mahi-mahi taco while you sit on a patio that's been furnished with chairlifts and a gondola. Do you go to any of the, like, newer places that have opened in recent years? Just the ice cream store. Which one is that? I forget the name of it. It's right down here on, on what used to be South Main across from the bar. Do you have any issues with sort of the direction town is headed at all? I've been talking to a lot of people today about the housing crunch and affordability. The affordability for housing in this town is, is terrible, especially for low-income folks like myself at this point in my life. There, there, it doesn't offer much for that. And when they put in these types of buildings, it hurts it even more. But there's nothing you can do for the changes because they are needed. I agree with that. They do need to be changed. But they have to do it in a way that's not going to affect the homeless and the poor folk. And do you think they have? It's to their best of their ability, but I think there's more that they can do. One thing this town needs to do is put in a laundromat. They need to put a laundromat in. There used to be one here, and they closed it years ago, probably for vandalism and that type of thing, but it is what that is. But they definitely need, like, a laundromat here and an inexpensive store that the local folks could get to instead of having to go to New Hampshire all the time just to get a loaf of bread or milk. Any, so any other changes you'd like to see? 
no, just just do more like this street here. They need to slow it down. They need to do a serious way to stop and slow people down. It's really bad. Yeah. Before I lose my cat. I was talking to Patrick Murphy because I was trying to answer a listener question about White River Junction. If you've never been, it's a village in the town of Hartford in the Upper Valley, and it lives up to its name as the junction of the White River and the Connecticut River, the junction of rail lines in the heyday of railroads. It's the junction of interstates I-89 and 91. It's also right on the border with New Hampshire, so junction of two states. White River, as some call it, is a place that's been through a lot of changes, which is what our question asker Amanda was wondering about. She told me she was too shy to talk on tape, but here's what she said over email. I'm in my mid-40s, and I feel like I've seen its downtown through about three different life cycles. When I was a kid, the introduction of the interstate highway system meant that the only remnant of White River Junction as a bustling railway village was the old diner my friend's grandparents went to after church. When I was a young adult, the diner was closed and a strip club opened down the street. And in my adult years, that strip club was replaced with shishi apartments I could never afford to live in and a cafe specializing in healthy smoothies. Today, there's nothing I like more than wandering from a dish of pad thai at Phnom Penh to check out the stationery at Post before rounding the corner to look at the pretty displays at the White River Floral Company and pick up vintage candies at Ava's Candy Corner. I cannot emphasize enough how strange this is to someone who remembers old wasteland White River Junction. From Vermont Public, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansee. Today on the show, how did this transformation happen? Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Amanda's question, and the question that you all voted for us to answer, was this. Some downtowns in Vermont are really thriving, like White River Junction. How did that happen when they used to be so bleak? That's a good question, Amanda. Um, and the only thing I would, what immediately comes to mind, the only thing I would say is that I lived here in 1992. My mom's family is from the area. Actually, my granddaughter and uncle lived right here in town. Um, and I don't consider it bleak. I don't, I don't really consider it bleak at all. I consider there were some income issues. There's some people, people here who were, who were, um, on assistance or working class folks. And it was a place for cheap rent. Before we talk about its evolution... Not surprisingly, 
The matter of whether White River Junction really was, quote, bleak is up for some debate. I wouldn't call it the bleak days, but, you know, a different time in the history of White River where maybe the economy was struggling more. When I first moved to Vermont 20-something years ago, my mom used to work at the VA, and we were afraid to venture down into the downtown area, and I used to live near the Bronx. (laughs) When I got my driver's license, um, because we're from Heartland, the rule was you weren't allowed to drive into downtown White River, period. You can go anywhere you want to go. You can't go there. I didn't perceive it as bleak. When I first walked into town here, which was in 1985, probably, I just thought, wow, this is a cool place. It's kind of like nobody knows it's here. And I did think it was a little, you know, it was underappreciated, I guess I would say. Bleak or no, everybody agrees that White River Junction was always a place in transition because it was a place for transition. In the early days, it was a trading post at the confluence of rivers then a thriving railroad town, until the 1960s, when rail lost out to the interstate highway system and the community's fortunes waned. Across all these eras, White River became very good at offering a good time. We didn't have these big, big factories in town. We just had hotels. We had bowling alleys. We had indoor miniature golf. We had maybe a dozen bars in town. You know, there were movie theaters, three movie theaters. It was like, it was a little bit of a a very, very tiny uh, Las Vegas, I guess you could say, you know. And the police dispatch was right here in this building. And every Saturday night, there would just be call after call of drunken, unruly people. And they'd just go in with the clubs out, bust some heads and silence the drunks, and then come back to the police headquarters. (laughs) They couldn't do that nowadays. But it was an interesting, interesting scene for me to see. Uh, People not care that I was a queer Vermonter. They didn't even mention it. So when my roommate and I first moved here, my roommate was straight, but we were skinny artists from Boston. We wore our black jeans and we were just, you know, skinny artists. We wander into the, the biker bar, the filling station. Right, we each have our little sketchbooks because we like to sketch people when we were going out and about. And we order our beer, we sit down, we take out our sketchbooks, and we just do a little surreptitious sketching, you know, in the in the local in the local bar, you know. Figure we should get to know the get to know our neighbors. And one big biker comes up to us and says, points at our books and says, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> and we're thinking, "Oh my, is this is this going to be it?" And then and then we said, "Well, uh, sir, there there are sketchbooks." sketchbooks he says uh, yes we're artists so you're artists he said that's great we thought that those were bibles and that you were preachers and if you had been preachers we were going to beat the shit out of you <laughs> and i think at that moment i fell in love with this town <laughs> it was a beautiful night the stars were out and you looked like 30 trillion dollars That last voice you heard was David Fairbanks Ford. And the White River he's talking about hasn't totally disappeared. Like that biker bar, the filling station, is still open. And there are still stretches of town where you feel like you're walking back in time. They just happen to be near, say, an upscale retirement community or a vintage thrift store. Or a place that sells English-inspired meat pies. And that's, I mean, I don't know if you've seen, we have... 
for a long time, we've been printing these t-shirts that on the front say White River Junction. On the back, they say it's not so bad. Totally tongue-in-cheek. We love White River Junction. We love, and that is, uh, you know, that's part of the element is that while there is inevitable gentrification, there is still a gritty element about White River Junction that we do embrace lovingly and that it isn't, we don't, I mean, you know, granted, we want safe infrastructure and not crumbling sidewalks and things like that. But not everything has to be marble and glossy and slick and shiny either. This is Kim Souza. And I operate a little independent retail shop called Revolution. Kim is also on the Hartford Select Board. And she's one of many creative and civically engaged people who made White River Junction into the place it is today. And she, like everyone else I talked to, downplays her own role and points back to the community. It's organic kind of grassroots collaboration. You know, we, we all have our own entities and projects, and then we also get together and work on things as a business community. How did that community get built? To hear Kim tell it, it's almost one long string of parties. We have this ongoing long-term motto of make your own fun. You know, we come up with ideas like, oh, hey, let's have a Mardi Gras-style Halloween parade. And now we've been doing that for 20 years. And someone says, oh, you should do a fashion show. And so now we have a very inclusive, body-positive, all ages, gender, sizes, shapes. Oh, well, we need reasons to dress up. So why don't you have a black-tie Oscar party? Like, okay. In other communities, these kind of events would be organized by, like, the Chamber of Commerce or a nonprofit. In White River... The fun comes courtesy of a secret society. Have you heard about the Rio Blanco Social Club? So, you know, same thing. We are sitting around on the deck of the Main Street Museum. We decided to form the secret society of the Rio Blanco Social Club. Rio Blanco, White River, and Espanol. A lot of the people we're going to hear from today have some sort of affiliation with the Rio Blanco Social Club, though most of them gave cagey answers when I asked them about it. I guess that's what makes it a secret society. It was anonymous and, you know, you couldn't tell who was, who were members. And, um, but basically, so we did some events and the main one was the Gory Days Parade. Yes, that's Gory Days. This is the Mardi Gras-style Halloween parade Kim mentioned. Bring the little tykes for one night only all-monster blowout at this year's Gory Days in White River Junction, Vermont. Creeping whores from the Batabone Basin candy corn... From what I understand, it's a parade with very few spectators because everyone who comes ends up in the parade. After the parade, there's a ball, and we just kind of come up with a goofy name for the ball every year, so it's been... The fireball, it's been the eight ball, it's been, I think this year it's the gumball. The wise will lock their doors, the cautious will shutter their windows, but the brave will join in. Gory Days, Halloween Parade and Ball, Saturday, October. <laughs> We're going to give the sound engineers something to edit out. Yeah. <laughs> Another member of the Rio Blanco Social Club was David Fairbanks Ford who told the story earlier about sketching portraits in a bar. Um, but it's a cabinet of curiosities, so it's a, it's a meta museum, it's a museum that is the history... David is the curator of the Main Street Museum. It's in an old fire station, and it is not your typical museum. This is our famous Virgisaurus. Sorry, say it. What is it? This is our famous Virgisaurus. This was made by Sluggo Gagarin. Virgisaurus, so like a Virgin Mary. It's a Virgin Mary dinosaur. It's half Trachodon and half Virgin Mary from Sheehan's Religious Supply Store in Boston. 
This is my head case. Many people say I have a head case. I'm the first to agree. So this, it's a case full of heads? It's, it's a case full of heads. There's a Tibetan repro of a uh, tortoiseshell, tortoiseshell mask. There's a plastic mask from New Orleans, Louisiana. There's a juvenile bear skull. It's a place that feels like the psychic home of today's White River. A mixture of old and new, high and low, where creativity reigns and everyone is welcome. I've always hated that word, exclusive, you know. So we just let everyone in. I've seen a molecular biologist at Dartmouth dancing with the town drunk. And that was from day one what we did here at the museum. We were non-exclusive. And uh, I've loved that. And and I, I can guarantee you that that will happen tonight. Tonight is player piano night. David has a 1930 Aeolian Stroud self-playing piano and boxes full of songs on paper scrolls that you feed into the piano. It's basically an old-school karaoke machine. The original is Aran Kachetorian. So tonight we have one guy with an injured hand, Stevie, he shows up to do live piano. My friend Lisa, Liza Van Damme, she shows up. And so we sort of draw themes together on a weekly basis and then people show up with a box of wine and somebody else shows up with a cake. It's controlled chaos. In other words, it's um, a lot of the events we do have no planning whatsoever. Controlled chaos seems like an apt description for some of the real estate development that's happened in town, particularly under a guy named Matt Busey. Rented out most of the building in in one day during an open house. Hundreds of people came through, and I was literally just drawing chalk lines on the floor saying, here's your space, this look good. (laughs) And then the carpenters came in and they just built the walls where the chalk lines were. Matt is referring to a building called the Tip Top Building. Today, it houses printmaking and pottery shops, a restaurant and a vintage store, lots of artist studios. So that green wall down there, yeah. that old brick, that was built in the 1800s. And that was a stable for the original bakery, which was actually over here. In By the way, when I asked Matt if he was a member of the Rio Blanco building, Social Club, he told me he was actually a founder. Though he also denied its existence, said it was more of a joke. Whatever you say. Which they filled in, and then they built an extension on this building. Anyway, when Matt bought the tip-top building in 2000, it was in rough shape. But he saw the potential. You know, to find a building like this tip-top building, which is 45,000 square feet, basically abandoned, dystopian, Blade Runner-ish, water running down, things exploding. (laughs) It was a lot of fun, actually. Um, And, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do with it, really. But it cost less than a house, so... um, how much did you, can you share how much you I think it was $250,000. In addition to the tip-top building, Matt has redeveloped a woolen mill, a telephone company building, and an American Legion. And he's turned all those spaces into about 80 units, residential and commercial. I mean, I've never built a new building. I just save old buildings. Matt Busey finances his projects with millions of dollars in funding from investors. And money, it probably goes without saying, is a big force behind White River Junction's resurgence. In addition to private developments like Matt's, 
there have also been public-private partnerships and countless grants orchestrated by the Hartford Planning Department. In 2011, the state designated White River as a Tax Increment Financing District, or TIF, which is a way that communities can fund improvements that will ideally attract more development. At this very moment, that program is funding a $5 million project to overhaul water and sewer downtown and make so-called streetscape improvements. All that capital helps, but just as important is the money outside White River Junction. That's what Matt Busey thinks. I think White River has redeveloped successfully because of where it's located. The Upper Valley is an economically stable place and differentiates it from other areas in Vermont, especially where there's not as much economic activity. If White River's artists like to say that it's just a few hours from Boston, New York, and Montreal, its business owners are happy to be 10 minutes from Dartmouth College, Dartmouth Health, wealthy communities like Hanover and Norwich, and the commercial hub that is West Lebanon, New Hampshire. I see White River's development and redevelopment really as just part of a natural thing that would have happened regardless if it was there because the economic pressures are present to force it to happen. After the break, it's one thing to cater to students across the Connecticut River. It's another to start a whole new school, especially when that school gives master's degrees in cartooning. (laughs) Yeah, you're standing in the post office building, or sitting in the post office building, which um, used to deliver mail and now delivers comics. (laughs) Plus... Even the most successful revitalization might not matter if you can't find workers. We're not going to do this like this anymore until we find help. That's right after this on Brave Little State. Welcome back to Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. Today... What's the secret to downtown revitalization? Our case study is White River Junction, a place where you can kick your weekend off with a craft cocktail and then catch some theater at Northern Stage or the Briggs Opera House. There's theater, there's the arts, there's film, animation, kind of you name it is happening up and down Main Street and around the corner here in White River Junction. It was this creative milieu that pulled Michelle Ollie to town. She co-founded the Center for Cartoon Studies in 2004. Um, so I saw these, you know, these, these places and, and could visualize a program. I could visualize the students in town and what they could contribute, and specifically art students. The campus of the Center for Cartoon Studies includes a former post office and a former department store. Students spend up to two years studying cartooning here. A lot of them pick up work in the local restaurants, and, of course, they spend money. The Center for Cartoon Studies, it's, it's $2.5 million annually that the school brings directly to the community, and that's in rents, that's in spending. The student body also diversifies the community. And, of course, you know, our community itself is we're in a state that's very white, and that, that has, you know, has its challenges when you're inviting a population to live here for a year or two or more, and some permanently move here after. And that's something we're all continuing to work on. For Michelle, that means walking over to have a conversation with a business owner when, say, one of her students doesn't feel safe at work. 
Michelle and others that I spoke to for this episode have acknowledged that there's been a lot of white in White River, but they're lucky because the community is also home to a distinguished multiracial theater group. I feel like if we can contribute to making this area a place where more Black, Brown, and queer folk can, like, feel safe and, like, want to, like, stay here, that would make me truly happy. This is Jarvis Green. I am the founder and producing artistic director of Jack Productions, um, based in White River and New York. We are an artistic sanctuary for Black creatives in the American theater. In addition to that, we catalyze compassion, empathy, love, and community through the lens of the Black experience. Jarvis founded JAG Productions here in 2016. The company stages plays and incubates new works. And like Michelle Ollie, Jarvis was enticed by White River's art scene. When I think about like what revitalizes a town and what makes uh, a downtown scene like exciting, it's like it's art. It's like creativity. It's 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 a it's the thing that connects people and like we as human beings like we long for and we yearn for uh, entry points into connection. Connection is what Jag's work is all about: bringing people together through stories and contemplating the human experience. At the end of the day, it's like how 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 does people in the audience. And our community, like, see themselves or someone they know, like, in the work. I've seen most of JAG's shows over the years. I think it's some of the best theater in Vermont. And it's made me think about this concept of inclusivity. Usually that word implies a need for white spaces to be more inclusive of people who aren't white. I told Jarvis that what I really like about JAG is that it makes me, a white person, feel like I'm being included in a Black space, and I'm welcome. And he was like, thanks. And he also pushed me a little further. Thank you for sharing that, because, like, honestly, at the end of all there is about inclusivity, race, all of that, go down a deeper, deep, go beyond that, and, like, what I really am about and want to tap into is, like, love, Period. Period. What community wouldn't benefit from this kind of presence? There's a lot of work that's happening in White River around various different things. And it's almost like this is the piece that was missing. It's like we can't have these conversations if we aren't talking about Black experiences. And you know what I mean? And I I think it's one thing. And like have that as a cultural pillar within the community. We got to feel it. We got to touch it. We got to see it. We got to be in conversation with it. It's got to live and breathe in this community so that we can actually talk about the other stuff. It all begins there. JAG Productions was by no means the first theater group in town. And Jarvis gives credit to the champions of art and community that came before him. I think it's important to always sort of honor our elders, particularly like David Briggs, that is doing like everything that he can to sort of make Briggs Opera House a community space and the Hotel Coolidge and like, you know, 
Brooke, who started Northern Stage. That's Brooke Chardelli, who brought the Northern Stage Theater Company to White River in 1997. And the folks that are unnamed, that I haven't met or I don't know, that created enough space for my Black, Southern, queer ass to come in and basically say, like, here I am, like, I hope you ride with me. I hope you fucks with me, but because I'm not going anywhere and like, this is what I want to do. Um, and so I, in order for that to happen, people had to, people had to really set it up for, for me to come in to do that. So just wanted to kind of uplift and highlight our elders and the people that came before. Are you a member of the Rio Blanco Social Club? <laughs> I I think I think that I am I I don't I don't think I'm like formally but like I I am like I get the emails and I get all the the tea about <laughs> <laughs> yes Kim Souza, one of the original members of the Rio Blanco Social Club, says she's glad to see a new wave of creative people in town. Well, those of us that are now in our 50s and 60s are like, oh, we're, we're, we're tired. We don't know if we could, like, you know, manage this dance party until last call or whatever. So now there's, like, a whole new generation of people who are, have picked up the mantle. The story of White River Junction is not a handy how-to for downtown revitalization. There's too much that is unique and gloriously eccentric about this place. But maybe it all comes down to something more simple. Just this willingness to change. To make old things new again and not take yourself too seriously. And then, when you've done your bit, step aside and make room for new people and ideas. But then again, sometimes change is unexpected and very unwelcome. A few weeks before I started reporting this story, a sprinkler system failed in the basement of one of the big buildings in the village, the Gates-Briggs building. A lot of businesses were impacted, including Kim Souza's. But the worst damage was to a beloved Turkish restaurant on the corner, Tuckerbox. They had three feet of water in their basement. So we used our basement like it was prep kitchen. It was, it was a lot. But now it's to- totally destroyed. Yeah, this walking cooler was only. Uh, Jackie and Viral Octe own the restaurant. They show me the space that used to hold their butcher room, prep space, inventory, office. Oh, it's it's critical to our operation. We don't have a choice. Like if we don't have this basement, we're we don't really have a restaurant. You know, we Jackie and Viral were actually in Turkey when disaster hit on their first family trip in years. So their staff all worked to lug everything upstairs and salvage as much as possible, which, in turn, ruined their dining room floor. It was really sad. When, when we came back, when we saw here, it was, it was even, uh, now it's open, uh, it would make me more emotional. Um, but it, it, was, it was sad. The Octaves told me they're still totaling the cost of the damage for their insurance. I mean, I've done the equipment. That's about $90,000, probably $100,000 of food. Pouring the concrete's going to be tens of thousands of dollars, I'm assuming. I haven't gotten a quote But their community didn't wait. 
On GoFundMe, they've already raised more than $67,000 toward a $100,000 goal. That's helped Jackie and Veral get a jump on repairs and continue to pay their employees, even though the restaurant has been closed. We are super, super fortunate and grateful that our community stepped up big time. So that, that's been a lifeline for us. On the day I visit, a crew is working on a new floor in the dining room. Jackie and Veral seem beyond stressed and also super focused. And it quickly becomes clear that this disaster is not the only major challenge they're facing. They cannot find workers. To be totally honest with you, this is the most difficult moment that we've had in running businesses. The lack of employees, specifically in the kitchen. It raises an interesting question. Say you can weather a pandemic and a crippling flood, thanks in no small part to support from your very vibrant community. But if no one's willing to cook the food on your menu, what then? Or maybe it's better to ask, what needs to change to meet this new moment? Until we get kitchen help, we're not going to be open seven days a week, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Just period. Even if the restaurant's ready, like we're not going to we're not going to overwork all of our employees like they were being overworked, and we're not going to overwork ourselves. But we we need help. Just this week, Tuckerbox did reopen for dinner only, and their repairs are ongoing. Meanwhile, the changes will just keep coming to White River, as they do. At one point when I was talking to Kim Souza, the clothing store owner, she mentioned that White River needs to keep housing and affordability top of mind, especially as it prepares to receive climate migrants in the coming years. There's no other option, she told me. It's adapt or fail. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to today's question asker, Amanda, for the great question. This year's Gory Days Halloween Parade is on Saturday, October 29th. You can find more info and lots of photos from White River Junction at our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit your own question about Vermont, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit, at Brave State VT. I reported and produced this episode with help and editing from the Brave Little State team. Myra Flynn, Josh Crane, and Mae Nagusky. All the music you've heard today is courtesy of local artists Chico Eastridge and Matt Major. Special thanks to David Briggs, Joey Finley, Kristen Connor, Chico Eastridge, Jordan Fitch, Samantha Davidson-Green, Pat Stark, Lori Hirschfield, Rebecca Bailey, Rob Schultz, Karen Jamiel, and James Stewart. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public. We have support from our station's sustaining members. If you like our show, you can join them at bravelittlestate.org slash donate. Or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Angela Evansy. We will be back soon with more people-powered Vermont storytelling. Until then, 
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.